Corner French Ministries presents The Hell of Torah, Part 1, with Daniel Joseph. Today, we are going to talk about the hell of Torah. An intriguing title, to say the least, but I didn't select this title for the sake of intrigue alone, but rather to convey a very, very important message so, for the next couple of weeks, we are going to be looking at the hell of Torah. What is it? What do I mean by this statement? I think for most of us, when we think of the word hell, we typically begin to formulate, we begin to draw pictures in our mind as to what hell is. We utilize imagery of fire, a place of burning where the wicked are destroyed, where the wicked are judged. And certainly this type of imagery, you know, of course, it's not some self-man-made concoction of our own imagination because these things, this imagery of fire, a place of burning, a place where the wicked are condemned, it's seen all throughout Scripture. I want to give you, I just want to start today, I want to give you a few examples of this. Going to Revelation 20:15, we read, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire couple things to note here. The lake of fire, obviously, we like in this, we understand this term to be none other than hell. The term that we use commonly today. A term that we see everywhere throughout the Bible. But note here, it says everyone not found written, or you could say inscribed, in the book of life. These are the individuals that are going to experience the lake of fire. It's not everyone. It's selected individuals, only those who are not in the Lamb's book of life. Moving back into the Gospels, Matthew chapter 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body, where? In hell. There's three things I want to point out here that are critical. Number one, God is the destroyer. He is a destroyer. He is a man of war. We like to focus on the fact that our God is loving, kind, and merciful. And I do focus on that. That's where my hope lies. Apart from understanding who God is through love, we have nothing. But we cannot forget that He is a man of war. He is the destroyer. Second point I want to point out here is that he is the one that is going to throw them, both soul and body, into hell. In other words, there's a select group he is going to destroy. Who are they? They are the wicked. So we have God the destroyer, who is going to destroy the wicked, how? How is he going to destroy the wicked? He is going to throw them into hell. This word that, you, when you look at the Greek on this, this word hell, it's very interesting, and Yeshua knew his audience and, and what he was saying. The word is not Hades. You know, that's a Greek word. That mean, that's for grave. Hades would mean grave. And you can trace that etymology back to Sheol in the Hebrew. Hades is not used here. Tartaro is not used here, a place of darkness. There's a very specific Greek word used here. It is Gehenna. Gehenna. 
And you can trace Gehenna back again, the etymology, back to the Hebrew to Gai Hinnom, or Gai Ben Hinnom, which means the valley of the son of Hinnom. The valley of Hinnom. Something you should know about the valley of Hinnom literally sits on the south side of Jerusalem. This was a place of burning. This is where they threw the executed criminals. This is where they put the refuse. This is where they burned the garbage. The garbage. It is a place of burning. Gehenna is a place of burning. And this is the term that Yeshua used as he was teaching his disciples. Moving ahead to 2 Peter. Peter opens up our minds a little bit, our spectrum in regard to what this lake of fire, the parameters to which it reaches. And what you're going to see is it's not a pond. It's quite large. Look at what Peter says. But the day of the Lord, I want to stop right here. Anytime you see the day of the Lord, you need to reckon this to judgment day. You can, again, look in Scripture, it confirms this. The day of the Lord is reckoned to judgment day. It's time to be judged. You can reference that in Isaiah 13, Joel 2, multiple areas in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, John 6, John 12. Anyways, Moving, uh, going through this in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens, okay, this is the heavens. Heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it. So here we have heaven, earth, and the works that are in it, which is talking about all the works. We'll see this later on next week. All the works that are in it will be burned up. They're going to be burned up. What burns? Fire. So heaven and earth are literally going to be dissolved. Think about that for a second. That, it, it, that, that kind of expands your imagination a little bit and how we create this little secluded area that's going to happen when Yeshua comes back. Of, there's going to be a little place over there somewhere where we don't see that's going to be hell. Oh, no, no, no. The entire heavens and the earth are going to be burning. This universe has never experienced anything like it at all. So these are just a few brief examples of Scripture referencing hell, or what I like to call the hell of Torah. Now, today I'm going to attempt to give you a little different perspective on what hell is, what the fires of hell really are. And for some of you, this is going to change your perspective on hell. This is going to change your perspective on Torah, the law of God. You know, several weeks ago, I was pondering on what I was going to present in this upcoming debate that I'm supposed to take part in sometime later this fall. For those of you who are not aware, the premise of this debate is the validity of God's law, His Torah. The other side is going to suggest or defend that since the coming of the Mashiach, since the coming of Christ, the law is no longer applicable. It's no longer binding upon the Christian because we as Christians were under a new covenant, one which does not include the law. While, of course, I am going to stand to defend the position that the law is in fact applicable, it is valid now more than ever before because of the coming of Christ, because of the redemptive work that he has done. Well, to make a long story short, 
as I was pondering all the variables involved and just trying to get my mind wrapped around the whole concept of going to defend this position, you have to realize this subject is massive. I mean, we're talking about, be, I mean, the, the scope of it is huge. And trying to go into a debate for a couple of hours and articulate everything I needs to be said, I mean, my goodness, it took me over half a year to get through six chapters of Galatians. How am I supposed to condense this massive thing I can't even get my arms around in merely just a couple hours? And then my mind starts going, well, you've got to start refining the points. You've got to start doing things like this. And then you finally come down to the most refined point of realizing there are only specific things I'm going to get to. What must I bring to the table? What are these things that I need to bring so that these people are rocked to the core, they're cut to the heart, and they go back to Scripture and start studying? This is what I'm left with. One of the things I quickly realized that I need to bring to the table was the fact that I need to express there is going to be judgment. I need to get across there is going to be fire. And understanding what this fire is, it is instrumental in understanding how God is going to judge. It's instrumental in understanding the validity of Torah in this age and the age to come. I want to begin today by giving you some insight in regard to what the fire of hell really is. Because scripturally speaking, we're going to discover aspects to this element that are quite remarkable. And what I want to do is I want to begin by taking you back to Torah, back to the book of Exodus. And there we find in the book of Exodus, we all know that it details Israel's redemption. The Lord delivers them out of Egypt, out of the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. And what does he do? He brings them to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Why? Well, there was a very specific purpose of why he brought them to Mount Sinai. It was to enter into covenant with his children. It was to enter into covenant. But as we come to chapter 19 in Exodus, we read something very, very interesting. The Lord makes his appearance before all of Israel. The entire, all the tribes. He makes his appearance, and this is what is said. Exodus 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Do you get that? How did the Lord come down upon the mountain? It was in fire. This is what they saw through fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. It'd be interesting if you were to get 20 believers, doesn't matter what denomination, get 20 believers into a room, have them sit in a circle, and if I were to throw out terms and I just said, what do you think of this? What comes to your mind? When I say fire in the smoke of furnace, there is a high probability that nearly all would respond, hell. There's a high probability. I want you to analyze the terms that are being used here, that we see here. Now what happened? As God descends down in fire and smoke is billowing off of this mountain, what happens? He speaks to them. He speaks to his children. He gives what is called the Eseret Hadavarim. 
the ten words, the ten commandments. He speaks these to them. And when Moses reflects in Deuteronomy, Moses reflects upon this very event. Listen to what Moses says to the congregation of Israel. This is interesting. Deuteronomy 5.4, the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain. How? From the midst of the fire. Literally proceeding forth from the fire. So the Lord doesn't just descend in fire, but when he spoke his words, his words proceeded forth from the fire. And then we drop down to verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Verse 23, excuse me, verse 23 is not in there. Yes, it is, okay. That is not verse 24, it's verse 23. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us His glory, His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet He still lives. What a powerful event. This was a powerful experience. When they saw God descend in fire, when they heard him speak out of the midst of the fire, we're told that he experienced the glory of God. Just think about that. That's what they experienced. It was the glory of God. And this seems to be God's modus operandi of presenting himself because we find just about 40 years earlier, ironically, in the very same spot, God presents himself to Moshe, to Moses. And what did that look like? Well, let's just quickly go back. Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock back to, uh, uh, to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. This is the very place God entered into covenant with Israel. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Here you have the angel coming, and he appears in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Verse 3. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. We'll come back to that in, in the coming weeks. Why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God, Elohim, called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. This is awesome. The simple point I'm just trying to make here is that God comes as fire. He speaks from the midst of the fire. His voice proceeds from the midst of the fire. It's no coincidence that we find going to Deuteronomy chapter 4, this statement. Listen to what this says. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is a fire. He is a consuming fire, a jealous God. It is somewhat interesting when you actually read this in Hebrew. It's Esohela. 
If you know Hebrew, even in modern day Hebrew, ohel, it means to eat. That's what ohel means. So you actually read this quite literally. It means he is an eating fire. If you've ever seen a fire work through a forest, that's exactly how people describe it. It eats. And we're told our God is an ever-eating fire. He is an all-consuming fire. And throughout scriptures, we see this imagery. It is utilized over and over to describe our Lord. We find that God's voice, or you could say his mitzvot, right? His mitzvot, his commandments, are synonymous with fire. His commandments are synonymous with fire. A great example of this, uh, when you see the voice of the Lord speaking, is found in the book of Acts, and we all know this story. It's regard to the festival of Shavuot, right? When they're all assembled at this festival, something miraculous happens. We go to Acts 2, and this is what we read. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them, listen to what they saw, tongues of fire. These tongues of fire had come down. Tongues of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Why did they sit upon each of them? Well, we're told. And they were filled with the Ruach Kodesh, the Ruach HaKodesh, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we know the Spirit of God is God. There's no question about that. And you wonder why these tongues of fire are coming down, because God is speaking. When He speaks, it's fire. Fire proceeds. I want to take this concept to the next level. And I want to do so by taking you to a particular passage found in what is known as the Apocrypha. How many of you have heard of the Apocrypha? A lot of you. This makes my job much easier. It's much less controversial. Well, for those of you who are not familiar with the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha is, is it's essentially just a compilation of books that today in Protestantism, they're considered what you would call non-canonical, meaning they're not part of the canon, they're not part of the 66 books. However, having said that, the Apocrypha, or at least many of the books in the Apocrypha, you need to understand they were included in the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, which is to say the Septuagint. The Septuagint included the Apocrypha. All right. Furthermore, we also know that some of the books of the Apocrypha were actually discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? So we know that the Apocrypha was in fact being read or utilized by both Jews and Christians. We know this for a fact. Uh, in, in, in fact, the Protestantism, along with Catholicism alike, they were using the Apocrypha even up to the time of the Reformation. So the Apocrypha, you need to understand, was considered to be a very valuable resource useful for edification and even doctrine, so long as it lined up with what we have as Scripture today. I mean, basically, what I mean by that is they're utilized to affirm Scripture, not create it. That's very important to make that distinction. Uh, even Martin Luther considered the Apocrypha valuable to read. Now, given the fact that I am sensitive to 
the controversial nature of going to books that lie outside of what is considered Scripture today, I understand the need to approach this delicately and responsibly. Therefore, uh, before we begin, before I take you to the Apocrypha, I need to lay down a little groundwork. Now, the specific book that I'm going to be taking you to is called Second Estress. Second Estress. And there are some things that I want to mention about this book before we actually break into it. Number one, I think this is worth mentioning. Um, thank you. <laughs> I think this is worth mentioning. This book was, in fact, included in the original King James. The 1611 King James, this book was in it. And this is actually a picture of it in the original 1611 King James. You have it on the screen there. The second thing I want to mention, and more importantly, is I want to give you a simple overview of the construction of this book. And I want to do so, uh, I want to begin to do so by taking you to Harper's Bible Dictionary. And it is imperative that you pay very close attention. And this is what they say. The second book of Estrus, a Jewish apocalypse dating from the very end of the first century A.D. Now, let me just give you a little additional history here. What book do we know that was created at the end of the first century, near the end of the first century? Revelation. It's during the same time, Revelation was said to be written. All right? And this is very interesting because when you read 2nd Estress and you read the book of Revelation, it is as though they're brother and sister. Very apocalyptic in nature. Very intense. The material was written under the pseudonym of Ezra in order to use the conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians a century prior to Ezra as a means of reflecting upon the intense suffering occasioned by the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in A.D. 70. Now this is where you need to pay very close attention. Chapters 1 and 2, okay, here's, just so you know, in 2nd Estress, there are 16 chapters, a total of 16 chapters. Here we find in chapters 1 and 2, and 15 and 16 represent Christian additions to the original Jewish apocalypse and are occasionally designated 5th and 6th Ezra, respectively. In other words, we have 16 chapters in 2nd Estress. And along came additions. In other words, this book is a composition of three separate works. Understand that. One work is chapter 1 and 2. Another work is chapters 3 through 14. And another work is 15 and 16. You understand? The original work is the one in the middle, 3 through 14. The slap-on, if you will, kind of bookends, the bookend editions are the first two chapters and the last two chapters. And this is very critical to understand. And let me tell you why. I'm, I'm gonna, let, let me put up a scholar for you, a Bible scholar, who comments, and then I'll make my additional commentary. Daniel J. Harrington, and for those of you who are not familiar with him, he's actually a professor of New Testament at the Boston College School of Theology. This is what he writes in regard to this book. The work known as Second Estress is, in fact, three separate compositions. 
In them, Ezra functions not as the architect of Israel's return from exile, but rather as a prophet and a visionary. In 2 Esdras 1 and 2, also known as 5th Ezra, Ezra prophesies about God's, listen to this, God's rejection of Israel as God's people and its replacement by the church. Did you catch that? Replacement theology. This is what he is referring to. This is a Christian work composed in Greek in the mid-2nd century. Now this is why it is so critically important for you to understand. Before I go to this Jewish apocalyptic book, that you understand I am not going to the editions. I am going to the original work. I will not be quoting from chapters 1 and 2, nor 15 and 16. I am not interested in the later on editions. Please notice here, I think it's worth pointing out that he says the first two chapters, which is essentially, when you do read them, and I have studied them, it has the taste, it has the feel of replacement theology. Well, I find this quite interesting when you consider when this gentleman, when this scholar, when they estimate this book was actually comprised. He says the mid-2nd century common era. What do we know about the mid-2nd century that was happening? There was a movement that was exploding at this time. It was called Marcionism. Well, isn't that fascinating? Because this doctrine of replacement theology, that the God of the Jews is the God of the Old Testament, and we have a better God in the New Testament now, a God of love versus a God of wrath. This was Marcion's philosophy in the mid-2nd century. This was exploding. It's interesting that we find, to call it a Christian edition, uh, I, I prefer to use another term. Not Christian. Let's continue. <laughs> in 2nd Estrus, chapters 3 through 14, known as 4th Ezra. Notice the chronology. They're not even chronological. It can't be because they're additions. In other words, you have... When you open, you look at 2nd Estrus, you read the first two chapters, well, it's considered 5th Ezra. But then when I get to chapter 3, now I'm reading 4th Ezra. And then when I get to 15 and 6, I'm reading 6th Ezra. So you just understand how this is laid out. Ezra engages in dialogue about the meaning of Israel's suffering, uh, sufferings and is granted visions that reveal what God is going to do in the near future on Israel's behalf. This is a Jewish work written in Hebrew around 100 Common Era, right when close to uh, Revelation. The material contained in 2nd Ezra 15 and 16, also known as 6th Ezra, consists of oracles of doom against the enemies of God's people, the church, and advice on how those enduring persecution should behave. This is a Christian work composed in the Greek in the 3rd century Common Era. So it's even a later addition than uh, chapters 1 and 2. Now, let me take you to another scholar, because he has something to say about this as well. And he confirms what we just read. His name's Michael Stone, and he's a professor, he's a scholar of Armenian studies. And basically, his expertise lies in Jewish and Christian literature. But listen to what he says. We can be more confident about the circumstances of the composition of 4th Ezra. Do you get that? The book stems from the last decade of the first century and was composed in reaction to the Roman destruction 
of Yerushalayim in AD 70. And I'm going to go one more place. I want to take you to one more place to give you a feel of this book. I'm going to take you to Jewish Encyclopedia. And under this header, Second Estras, this is their introduction to this book. This is what they say about it. One of the most interesting and the profoundest of all Jewish and Christian apocalypses is known in the Latin Bible as Estre Quartus. Where we get that quartet, it's Latin, comes from the Latin quartus. It means fourth. Did you just see what was said? Estre Quartus. It's explicitly, it's not talking about later editions, it is talking about fourth Ezra, the very book we'll be going to today. And it says it is the most interesting and profoundest of all Jewish and Christian apocalypses. And let me tell you, as we enter this book, you are going to want to put your spiritual seatbelts on because it reads like Revelation the first time. It is powerful. It is intense. And one thing that I think you're going to appreciate that I'm going to do the whole way, we are going to be confirming it with the infallible Word of God, what we call the canon of Scripture today. With that said, let's go here. And I want you to understand, I wasn't going to go here just because, you know, I don't like to be controversial. That's not my nature. I never talk about anything controversial, do I? So, when we're discussing the topic we are today, the importance of it, the gravity of it, I couldn't not do this. I did not want to even go here because I didn't want to have to go through everything we just went through. No other reason but pure laziness. But I did. It was so important that I take you here to, 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 to capitalize on our topic today. That's why we're going here. Second Estres, chapter 13, verse 1. After seven days, I dreamed a dream in the night. Keep that in mind. I dreamed a dream in the night. And lo, a wind arose from the sea and stirred up all its waves. As I kept looking, the wind made something like a figure of a man. Come up out of the heart of the sea, and I saw that this man flew with the clouds of heaven. And wherever he turned his face to look, everything under his gaze trembled. That is awesome. He looks, he has a vision in the night. He sees something like a man coming out of the heart of the sea. And what does he see? Wherever this man looks, everything trembles. Who do you suppose this man is? It is none other than the Messiah, Yeshua. And you're going to see this as we continue. One quick thing I want to point out is he notices something that this man does. Very specific. What does he do? He flew with the clouds of heaven. This is this man. He flies with the clouds of heaven. Well, that's amazing. Let me take you to Daniel 7 verse 13. I was watching in the night visions. Same time. And behold, one like the Son of Man. Notice the title used for the Mashiach here. The very same title that Ezra saw coming up out of the sea. Man. One like the Son of Man, what's he do? Comes with the clouds of heaven. He was flying with heaven. Flying with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. We find the exact same imagery happening in Yeshua's why he's on trial to be crucified. Look at what, what happens here in Matthew 26, 63. But Yeshua kept silent. And the, and, and the Kohen Gadol answered him and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Mashiach, the Son of God. And Yeshua said to him, It is as you said. 
Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man. This is the specific title that Ezra used. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. And what is he doing? He is coming on the clouds of heaven. Exact same imagery. Going back to Esdras chapter 13, verse 4. And whenever his voice issued from his mouth, his voice moved forward from his mouth. All who heard his voice melted as wax melts when it feels the fire. After this, I looked and I saw an innumerable multitude of people were gathered together from the four winds of heaven to make war. So here he sees this man coming out of the heart of the sea, right? Awesome character, flying with the clouds of heaven. And now he's seeing the world from the four winds of heaven are gathering to make war against the man who came up out of the sea. This is exactly, you read the prophet Joel, this is exactly what he saw. This is exactly what he prophesied. Let me take you to the book of Revelation. Look at what Revelation says. 19 verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, we'll be coming back to this passage, in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is what he's coming to do. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Again, this is going to be something we come back to. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Verse 19, and I saw the beast, the kings, not king singular, plural, the kings of the earth and their armies, what do they do? Gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Exactly what Ezra saw in his vision. Identical. He saw what John saw. Going to 2nd Esdras, verse 6. And I looked and I saw that he carved out for himself a great mountain. This is the man. Ezra's looking at this man who came out of the sea. We know it to be Yeshua. And he sees that this man carved out for himself a great mountain and flew up onto it. And I tried to see the region or place from which the mountain was carved, but I could not. Verse 8. After this, I looked and I saw that all who had gathered together against him to wage war with him were filled with fear, and yet they dared to fight. When he saw the onrush of the approaching multitude, he neither lifted his hand nor held a spear or any weapon of war. You can see his perplexity. It's totally bizarre. The kings of the earth are all gathering to war against Yeshua. He's looking at this man, and this man is not going for a sword. He carries no weapon. Now look at what's said in the next verse. But I only saw how he sent forth from his mouth something like a stream of fire, and from his lips a flaming breath, and from his tongue he shot forth storms of sparks. What a sight. He doesn't pick up weapons of war. He opens his mouth and a stream of fire pours forth. Verse 11. All those who were mingled together, the stream, all these were mingled together, the stream of fire and the flaming breath and the great storm and fell on the onrushing multitude that was prepared to fight and burned up all of them. These men who are gathered to war against Yeshua, what happens? The stream of fire comes out of his mouth and they are all consumed. 
They're burned. So that suddenly nothing, get this, nothing was seen of the innumerable multitude, but only the dust of ashes and the smell of smoke. And when I saw it, I was amazed. Well, this is interesting. If you read Malachi, you go to chapter 4, this is exactly what Malachi portrays. There's nothing left. There is no evidence of the wicked. All that's going to be there is the smell of smoke from that stream of fire and ash. There's no evidence. They will neither leave them root nor branch, is what he says in Malachi. Psalm 37, verse 20. It's interesting. It's the exact same thing we just read. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. They're gone. Moving on to verse 12 in 2nd Estress, getting closer to the point here. After this I saw the same man come down from the mountain and call to himself another multitude that was peaceable. Then many people came to him, some of whom were joyful and some sorrowful. Some of them were bound and some of them were bringing others as offerings. So all these different people doing with different things. You can read Hebrews. This is exactly what's pointed out. It's pretty amazing. Then I woke up in great terror and prayed to the Most High and said, verse 14, From the beginning you have shown your servant these wonders, and you have deemed me worthy to have my prayer heard by you. Now show me the interpretation of this dream also. Well, just so you know, Ezra gets an answer to this, to this prayer. Because now he's going to be given the interpretation. We jump down to verse 25 and we read, This is the interpretation of the vision. As for your seeing a man come up from the heart of the sea, this is he whom the Most High has been keeping for many ages, who will himself deliver his creation. Man, what an awesome description of the Messiah Yeshua. Because one thing I know, there's only one way we are redeemed to the Father. There's no other way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the redeemer of creation. So he says, who will himself deliver his creation? And he will direct those who are left. And as for you seeing wind and fire and a storm coming out of his mouth. Look at what it said. As for... And as for his not holding a spear or weapon of war, yet destroying the onrushing multitude that came to conquer him, this is the interpretation. The days are coming when the Most High will deliver those who are on the earth. And bewilderment of mind shall come over those who inhabit the earth. Verse 31. They shall plan to make war against one another. City against city, place against place, People against people and kingdom against kingdom. Ezra is shown the very last days. The Lord revealed to him what was going to happen. Well, this doesn't sound vaguely familiar to you. It does to me because these are the exact words of our Lord Yeshua. Look at what he says in Matthew 24, verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Exactly what was shown to Ezra. It's exactly what Yeshua was teaching his disciples. When his disciples came to him and said, Lord, what will be the sign of the end of the age? What will be it? And this is one of the things he responds with. 
amazing. Going back to 2nd Estrus, verse 32. When these things take place, and the signs occur that I showed you before, then my son will be revealed. Fascinating, because as you continue on in Matthew 24, you come to Yeshua saying the exact same thing. When these things have come to pass, then the sign of the Son of Man will be revealed in heaven. Revelation 1:7, all will see him coming. We will all see him. This is just this is just mind-blowing. So when all these things and these signs occur that I showed you before, then my son. One of the most fascinating things about this prophecy, about looking at this, is this, son, this man that he saw rising up out of the sea, later on, as he's given an interpretation, he is now identified as the Lord's son. None other than Yeshua. My son will be revealed. Whom you saw as a man coming up out of the sea, then when all the nations hear his voice. You're not going to hear his voice unless you op- he opens his mouth. This is what happens. He's going to open his mouth. All the nations shall leave their own lands and the warfare that they have against one another. And an innumerable multitude shall be gathered together, as you saw, wishing to come and conquer him. This is amazing. Going to verse 35. But he shall stand on the top of Mount Zion. And make no mistake, the Mount Zion that is being described here is none other than the New Jerusalem. Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem. In, uh, in Zion shall be, uh, come to be made manifest to all people, prepared and built, as you saw the mountain carved without hands. Now it's interesting, when he, er- when he saw this earlier, that he had carved something out without hands, we see this, oh, this type of imagery in Scripture. For example, Colossians 2.11. Paul's talking to the Gentiles who have been saved through faith in the Messiah Yeshua. He says, you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, completely supernatural. Completely a work of God. And when God created the heavens and the earth, He didn't form it and fashion it with His hands. He spoke and it was. Right? He opened his mouth and it took place. His word will not return void to him. That is an impossibility. Now as we continue, you're going to see why I took you to this book. What we're about to read illuminates what the fires of hell really are. We go to verse 37. Then he, my son, will reprove the assembled nations for their ungodliness. This was symbolized by the storm and will reproach them to their face. Interesting, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says the Lord will repay those who hate him to their face. It's exactly what it says. So verse 38, will reproach them to their face with their evil thoughts and the torments with which they are to be tortured, which is symbolized by the flames, listen, and will destroy them without effort by means of the law. He's going to destroy them without effort by means of the law which was symbolized by the fire. So this stream of fire which proceeds out of the son's mouth, out of Yeshua's mouth, is quite literally Torah. It is the law of God. And this gives us a dramatically different view on hell and what the fires of hell really are. 
Because the fire that is going to be kindled, which is going to devour the wicked from this earth, it's Torah. What I call the hell of Torah. Now, this presents a serious problem for those who reject the law of God. For those who say that Christ came to do away with the law, law is no longer valid or applicable. Know this, when Yeshua comes back, he is going to open up his mouth. He will speak and fire will come out. And it will devour everything that has not been redeemed, everything that is wicked. It is going to devour it. Those who rejected his law will be devoured. Now with this imagery in mind, I want to take you back to the New Testament. Because this very imagery can be found in Scripture. What we just read in 2nd Estrus. And before we go there, I just want to quickly remind you of what we read in verse 9. Verse 9 said this, When he saw the onrush of the approaching multitude, he neither lifted up his hand or held a spear or any weapon of war. But I saw only how he sent forth from his mouth something like a stream of fire. And from his lips, get this, a flaming breath. His breath. And from his tongue he shot forth storms of sparks. It's interesting, the exact same thing is essentially conveyed in the second epistle to Thessalonians. Paul's talking about the destruction of Satan. Listen to how he describes the event. This is how he describes it. For the mystery of, interestingly enough, lawlessness, Torahlessness, is already at work. Now that's mind-blowing. Already in the first century, the spirit of removing God's law from his people was already moving forward. And we know this, as I told you, you come into the mid-second century, you come into Marcionism, a total destruction of the faith. He was a total heretic, and yet his gospel spread like fire. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, and this is Satan, he's, he's literally called, his title, one of his titles called the lawless one. He will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume, how? The breath of his mouth. The breath of his mouth. And destroy with the brightness of his coming. You know, you go back to Ezekiel 28, and you actually see that Satan is going to be turned to ash. He's going to be turned to ashes. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. I'm going to close with a thought, and I'll put it up on the screen with you so you can follow along. But there's so much truth to these statements. It's critical. Those who embrace the law in this age will escape it in the age to come. But those who reject the law in this age will receive it in the age to come. You just ponder that. Now, we'll close here for today. We are not done with this topic. This today is incomplete because there's many more things to bring to the table. There's many more things to talk about, one of which is Yeshua himself and how salvation is through him and him alone, and how all of this fits together with Yeshua and the law. So we'll close. Shabbat Shalom.
promise of his coming.